Hello, everybody, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Barry Bettino and Kevin Drewley. This is our March 2023 episode, number 37 all time, and that means it's a special episode because this is the third anniversary of our podcast. Wherever, however you're listening today, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear more about it for our My Story feature in our magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. Just so you know, you can view past My Story entries and catch up on all the other news from around the safety world on our website, safetyhealthmagazine.com. In this month's episode, Barry will take us on a deep dive into his feature story on the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. We'll also be joined by OSHA's Reginald Jackson to talk about loading dock safety in an expanded version of our five questions with. And the three of us will also share lessons learned in what else? The What Do We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we examine a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health Magazine as part of our Deep Dive segment. In the March issue, Barry writes about the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and how it impacts employers and workers. The legislation was signed into law in late December and is set to take effect this summer. Barry, when you're ready, could you please lead the plunge into this latest Deep Dive? Absolutely, Kevin. Thanks very much for that intro. This was an interesting topic to dive into, so to speak. A quick bit of background first. So the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was first introduced uh, back in 2012 by Senator Bob Casey, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. It wasn't until the 114th Congress from 2015 to 2017 that it got some bipartisan support when Senator Bill Cassidy, who is a Republican from Louisiana and a physician, got behind the bill as well. When the bill became law in December, uh, Casey mentioned that he'd been fighting for this for over a decade, and and Cassidy's support was a big help in, quote-unquote, getting this over the finish line. So what does the legislation do? Uh, simply put, employers with 15 or more employees are now required to provide, quote-unquote, reasonable accommodations to ensure that pregnant workers stay safe and healthy on the job. And these accommodations can include things such as a chair or a stool to sit on while working, uh, additional bathroom breaks, or having a water bottle while working. One of our sources, M.K. Fletcher, who is a safety and health specialist at uh, the AFL-CIO, told us in an interview that the passage of this act really just provides the basic decency for pregnant workers. And what this legislation also does is it closes a loophole in the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978, which said employers were only required to provide accommodations for workers to the extent that their restrictions rendered them, quote unquote, disabled, according to that definition within the Americans with Disabilities Act. And what that has meant over the years for some pregnant workers is they've lost jobs or they've had to take unpaid leave during a pregnancy. Marjorie Del Toro is the CEO of EHS International, which is an environmental health and safety compliance group that's based in California. And Marjorie was one of our sources for this story. She's also the OSHA Alliance co-chair for the National Association of Women in Construction. And she said one major benefit of the law is, in her words, Uh, Pregnant women should not fear losing their jobs. Uh, Losing a job or medical coverage can be devastating. 
So what are some more things that workers and employers need to know about this legislation? So, Alan, workers should know that they now have these basic protections and they can request reasonable accommodations and their employers can't take action against them for those requests. Uh, Del Toro suggested that workers should print out a copy of H.R. 1065, which is the House version of the bill, and that was passed in 2021, and share that with their employers. Um, She said there are a number of YouTube videos, for example, explaining the act, and perhaps maybe a discussion with the HR team where a pregnant worker is employed can be beneficial as well. Now, as a CEO herself, Del Toro said that one thing that might turn company leadership off is approaching them in a negative or forceful way about these accommodations. And she said many employers and workers are still learning about this law. Uh, so workers should should take the opportunity to share what they know with others. Um, and Del Toro said that her company recently has a pregnant worker who's considered high risk. And that pregnant worker works three days a week at home now. And when that worker reaches the eight-month mark in her pregnancy, she'll work full-time from home. Now, this is impossible for workers in all industries, of course. It's just one example. Now, for employers, they can examine other state laws uh, and review some of those accommodations that have been listed in those and also be prepared to keep workers safe in uh, some new and perhaps different ways than usual. So what are some other reasonable accommodations in the workplace that pregnant workers should expect now? Well, Kevin, the the interesting part of this legislation is the next task falls on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, which is going to have to issue regulations based on examples of reasonable accommodations. And this might take some time. So there is a little bit of confusion among employers right now about this and what exactly is a reasonable accommodation. But through interviews and other sources, I I gathered a list of some potential accommodations, and those were printed in the magazine this month. More than two dozen states have laws similar to this already. For example, here in Illinois, where the NSC's home base is, a similar law was passed in 2015. And some of the the most likely accommodations uh, are things such as more frequent or longer bathroom breaks, uh, periodic rest breaks, uh, light duty, uh, assistance with manual labor, uh, lifting limitations, temporary reassignment to a less strenuous or a less hazardous job. Uh, There's also modification of workplaces current equipment or acquisition of new equipment, uh, an assignment to a vacant position in a company, and time off to recover from conditions related to childbirth. Now, there are other accommodations to consider as well, and MK Fletcher from AFL-CIO mentioned that pregnant workers should talk to their employers as well as their healthcare providers about chemicals that are used in the workplace and get to know more about those. And Fletcher mentioned that a lot of reproductive hazards pose a risk early in a pregnancy based on chemical exposures. Um, Another concern for workers is those who wear respirators. And and Fletcher said a pregnant worker should have an evaluation uh, because their health can change during or after a pregnancy. So this could lead to a worker needing a different respirator or not being able to wear the type of respirator that they're currently provided on the job. And one thing to mention as well from our story was the voice of coworkers. And and for workers who have pregnant colleagues, um, Del Toro said, feel free to ask them if they know about this rule and check in with that colleague to see if there's a need for a chair or stool, a water bottle, or, or some other accommodations as well. Well, thank you, Barry, for your work on this timely story. There certainly are lots of takeaways for the audience and readers. 
If you do want to read more about this or other topics, as well as news from around the safety world, please check out the March issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path in the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Start the new year off right by sending your submission to safehealth at nsc.org and share the road you traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. Loading docks are hubs of commerce. Each year, billions of tons of goods are loaded and unloaded from vehicles in these areas, creating numerous worker safety considerations, both inside and outside of facilities. So how can employers keep loading dock workers safe? Joining us this month to discuss this topic is Reginald Jackson of OSHA. Reginald is a safety and health specialist in the Office of General Industry and Agricultural Enforcement within the agency's Directorate of Enforcement Programs. We're going to expand the scope of this segment this month. Uh, as, you, as you know, this usually is called five questions with, but Reginald kindly has agreed to answer 10 questions in part because of ongoing interest in a Workplace Solutions article posted to the Safety and Health website in late 2017. Today, more than five years later, we still are receiving specific comments and questions stemming from this article, which also directs visitors to a loading dock safety feature that Alan wrote for our September 2020 issue of the magazine. We've used reader feedback to help shape our questions for Reginald. So with that, Reginald, we thank you for joining us on the safe side and welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. I look forward to uh, participating in this uh, interview. Well, no, same same here for each of us. Um, so to get things going today, what are some common hazards and incidents that may occur at loading docks? You know, applying general safety principles such as hazard assessment, proper work practices and equipment and, and p- controls can help reduce workplace uh, injuries involving moving and handling uh, equipment at loading docks. Uh, when moving equipment manually or or with machine, uh, employers should know and understand the potential hazards associated with the task, uh, and they should be able to control the hazards in the workplace. Because of the numerous injuries uh, that can result from improper handling and moving equipment, employers should also be aware of the incidents that's happened in the past. Uh, employers should inform uh, the employees of these type of incidents uh, when they're first hired and when the incidents occur uh, within the facilities. Uh, employees and employees uh, should examine their workplaces routinely to determine if there are any unsafe or unhealthy conditions or equipment and take the appropriate actions. Uh, as you said, some of the common hazards that we see in loading docks, you know, they're struck by hazards that are there, of course, uh, improper uh, stacking of materials. Uh, you know, material can move uh, during transports, uh, falls, of course, from the heights from the loading docks themselves and just slip trips and falls on the dock. Uh, you can also protruding material uh, can cause hazards for employees as well. Uh, there's cut and puncture hazards. And of course, working in the heat and the cold can also cause issues. Uh, and then, of course, with the moving of the manual equipment or material handling equipment, individuals can cut, be caught in between. You now, employees must ensure that when they're loading and unloading trailers, uh, that there's an increased risk of uh of falling through the trailers just due to damaged trailers when you're using power industrial truck forklifts or other uh, material handling equipment to unload the trailer. Uh, there's been several fatalities that's happened uh, when employees fall through damaged floors of trailers. So employees should ensure that they inspect those trailers before putting any mater- material handling devices in there. 
other injuries and even fatalities that occur when forklifts run offloading docks or when products fall on individuals or when employees are caught in between the trailer and the loading dock itself. Uh, and of course, of course, when forklifts run over individuals, this is also a time we've had injuries. Uh, employees working on loading docks must not only uh, be mindful of what they're doing, but they also should be aware of the action that, that's going on around them, especially when you have forklift drivers and other material handling equipment. Reginald, our, our safety and health readers have asked about OSHA's requirement that a dock that creates a drop of 48 inches or more must be guarded by a barrier. Could you please share more on this requirement and also do additional agency standards apply to other facets of loading dock safety? Yes, you know, uh, the employer, as you stated, must ensure that any walking working surfaces that has an unprotected side or edge and has a four foot drop or more to a lower level, uh, that lower level may not be the ground. It, it could be another uh, a platform within the facility. So it's a four foot drop uh, to a lower level uh, must be protected by some type of guardrail system safety net or personal fall protection system. Of course, within most uh, loading dock areas, we're going to see guardrail systems that are put in place. Uh, and just to cover the guardrail systems themselves that are usually seen on loading docks, uh, the top rail of the guardrail system should be anywhere between 42 inches, and that's plus or minus three, uh, above the working surface. Again, that working surface may be uh, a surface that's within uh, the facility itself. It may not actually be the physical ground itself. Uh, also, with that, uh, the guardrail system, there must be a mid-rail install, which is uh, just as it says, it's usually between the bottom of the walking working surface and the, and the bottom of the rail somewhere in between uh, to uh, protect the employee from a fall. And as you stated, loading docks are very dangerous areas for employees and, and several other OSHA standards directly apply to loading dock operations. Uh, some of them, as you're well aware, of course, are, are dock plates, either portable or fixed that we may have, uh, stairways. We have some docks that have uh, actual stairs. There may be three or four stairs there, but there can be, of course, hazards in there, and there are standards that apply to those. Um, Emergency planning is another one. As you're well aware, if, if an incident was to happen within the uh, loading dock itself, uh, the employees have to know how to evacuate that area if it's going down the stairs or if it's going out of exit door. So that's also one. Another one, of course, is ventilation and noise hazard. Uh, some of the material handling equipment that we use, of course, is very noisy. And if we're using combustible uh, forklifts, there's a, there's a possibility of, uh, of ventilation issues inside the trailer as well. Uh, hazardous material handling, storage, and emergency response. Uh, that's a big one. Of course, on some of these loading areas, they are using these materials and they are being loaded. And as an employer, they should prepare for that and have procedures in place to respond if there are type, some types of spill. And of course, along with that comes personal protective equipment, uh, be it we have to do the hazard assessments to find out exactly what type of uh, personal protective equipment that the employees may need. Uh, sanitation. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest ones that we have within our loading dock area, just due to the material, the packaging and everything else that goes along with it that may be uh, used uh, at the loading dock. Uh, another one, as I stated, also is fire protection. Some loading docks have uh, sprinkler systems installed, so that's another requirement that may be there. Uh, and, of course, there's always going to be some type of electrical hazards uh, that may be present from uh, either uh, exposed wiring from, from lighting or some type of exposed uh, electrical panel. Uh, so as you can see, loading docks can expose employees to numerous hazards. So identifying and assessing uh, potential hazards in loading dock areas play an important role in employee safety. The employer should communicate information concerning these hazards to the employee. The employee should establish the appropriate procedures, protective measures, and corrective measures if something goes wrong with that. 
So speaking of communicating with employees, um, could you tell us uh, more about the basics for visual barriers and marking for dock doors, as well as platforms or any other fall edges? Sure. One of the things I wanted to make sure that we understand is that with the issuance of our, our November 2016 Walking Worker Services Final Rule, uh, OSHA uses more of a performance-based language to provide employers with a greater flexibility in complying with the regulation. Uh, this greater flexibility allows employees to select the fall protection system uh, that provides them the adequate and equal level of protection. Uh, by providing this for, uh, flexibility, employees can select an option that works best for their situation and their environment and is most cost efficient for protective measures capable of reducing and eliminating fall hazards. I say all that to say that the employee still has a responsibility to ensure that each employee working on a walking working surface and is exposed to a four foot fall or more to a lower level, they still have to provide the same type level of protection uh, as the OSHA standards uh, uh, specifies. So therefore, uh, when, when I say that, it has to go back to exactly what we talked about earlier as far as the guard rail system being at plus or minus 42 inches and having a mid rail. Uh, when we talk a little bit, OSHA also has a standard where we talk about some of the basic colors that are designed uh, for caution and marking of physical hazards, usually is yellow. Uh, yellow is associated with OSHA. We talk about struck by hazards, stumblings, falls, trips, and of course, caught in betweens. Uh, the idea uh, behind a color system is to make employees aware of potential hazardous conditions. Uh, each circumstances needs to be evaluated individually by the employer to determine if a color code system is needed. And I want to emphasize here that this color code system in no way, in no way eliminates the needs for adequately protecting the employee from the hazard. It acts as a uh, Excuse me. It acts as a awareness uh, enhancement for the employer to let them know that uh, the uh, hazard is that a hazard is present. This is, of course, is a performance oriented standard, uh, and it's left at the discretion of the employee to determine first if the color coding is needed, and second, the optimal location uh, that it should be used. So, should dock doors remain closed when not in use? And what if it's best for a facility to leave the door open for ventilation or to see when a delivery truck has arrived? It's kind of, uh, as I stated earlier, you know, this is a performance-oriented uh, standard that we have uh, developed here. So one of the things when, a doc, when dock doors are not in use or being unloaded, the employees should prevent employees from falling, stepping, or driving off the edge. I keep reiterating that because that's the most important portion of this that we have to remember, is that we have to ensure that the employee is not exposed to that fall. Uh, the employee can do this uh, if, if the dock doors are left open or maintained in an open position, screens, rail of barriers may be used in place of the dock doors. However, however, any screens, railings, or barriers used uh, must be appropriate and meet the same level of protection as you would as any other the fall protection as far as the guardrail systems. Again, at 42 inches plus or minus with a mid-rail in between. Reginald, what are the requirements for the stress limits on dock chains and, and other hardware? Mm. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, employees use chains and alternate uh, methods when they have to have removable uh, guardrails and loading docks. Uh, but they can only do this, of course, when they demonstrate that change can provide the same level of protection as a removable guardrail system. Uh, the guardrail system must be capable of withstanding without failure a force of at least 200 pounds of pressure applied downward and outward in any direction for at least two inches from the top edge of the top point of the top rail. Uh, the mid rail 
uh, the intermediate members, which is called, which is right in between the middle, uh, should be capable of withstanding without failure a force of 150 pounds applied downward and outward in any direction along that intermediate rail. So I say that, so when we wrap up the guardrail system, as we can see, it should be at least 42 inches plus or minus a three, and it should have a mid-rail, and it should be capable of extending the 200 pounds at the top of the guardrail system, and the mid-rail should be able to extend uh, 150 pounds uh, at the mid-rail. You mentioned earlier there's often lots of activities inside facilities with workers on foot as well as moving forklifts and other machinery. Uh, which steps and considerations should be part of employers' traffic control plans for inside and outside facilities? Uh, as you stated, employees' traffic control plans uh, should not only be developed uh, for the employees, but they should be made aware, the employers should make the employees aware of these uh, plans amongst hiring and as they modify the plans themselves. Uh, the plan should include incoming and outgoing uh, vehicles, deliveries, fork trucks, forklifts, uh, and employees probably own vehicles should also be in there, as well as employees' foot traffic. Uh, some of the some of the things that we look at when we talk about outside plans that establishes uh, the delivery vehicles when they're uh, entering the vehicle, maneuvering around or exiting the property. Uh, employees entering and leaving uh, the employees parking lot should also be something uh, that's taken in consideration with that. Uh, the shipping and receiving should be separate from the employee parking lot. Uh, employees travel to and from their, their work site should be within that plan as well. Uh, one-way traffic flows or one-way traffic lanes are always a good option as well. Uh, and if, if necessary, there can also be physical barriers uh, put in between the pedestrians and any type of vehicle uh, traffic that's out there. Uh, employees should be prohibited from high-risk areas, uh, being in some of the delivery areas or where trucks are maneuvering. Another thing is that there should be designated uh, employee crossing areas. Uh, if they do have to cross over to dangerous areas, uh, employees who are working in the actual loading dock area, or excuse me, in the parking areas, uh, they should have some type of reflecting clothing on. And when backing, if necessary, a spotter should be used uh, if there are limited views. Uh, some ways to eliminate and uh, separate and control conflict uh, between material handling equipment and employees on the inside of the vehicle, uh, excuse me, inside of the facility is to ensure that uh, that a proper marking and sufficient space and clearance for aisles and loading docks and other passageways are maintained at all time and that they are wide enough for the material handling equipment that's being used. Uh, when aisles and passageways are used to uh, move material, employees must be allowed significant space in those aisles for the loading docks. Not only the, through the loading dock, but the door should be uh, wide enough for the uh, material handling equipment as well. And if there's any turns that may need to be made in the dock, it should all be uh, fitted in there. That sounds strange, but I've been to many facilities that sometimes they'll get new equipment in or they'll order new equipment. And once they get the new equipment in, then they'll find out that they have issues that it's not able to go through the dock door or it has it can only go to the dock door and then they may have to use another piece of equipment to load the dock door. So I say that while it sounds like it may be a common sense, it's one of those things that we want to make sure that we're ensuring that the material is able to have significant space to move uh, as it needs to in the uh, facility. Also, significant clearance should also be provided for loading for loads that uh, to ensure that they're not striking employees or falling on employees. Uh, if either if we're using mechanical or a manual type of uh, material handling devices, we need to ensure that those uh, items are properly seated and stacked and that they're not creating a hazard themselves. 
Uh, the employer should also ensure that, ensure that all passage weights are maintained clear uh, as possible and eliminate tripping hazards. As we know, it can be very busy uh, within the dock areas and the areas leading to the dock. And that's something that has to be looked at by the employer and the employees are responsible for ensuring that, you know, tripping hazards are out of the way. Employers should not should not also should not store any type of hazardous uh, material within the area, even temporarily, uh, because it can also create a hazard for the employees. Uh, another thing that could be taken into consideration is uh, uh, to make uh, aisles that uh, for employees to walk down. Uh, we uh, sometimes I always go into places and, and you'll see aisles for the uh, material handling equipment to move. But you, it's also could be good to have aisles for other pedestrians as far as their walkways as well. Uh, another thing that could be used on the inside is uh, mirrors. Uh, as you know, that can also help uh, the uh, power industrial trucks when they're coming through. If they're, if there's a blind spot, to have a mirror so that they're able to see any uh, limited poor visibility or corners, doorways, or other angles like that. And of course, communication is the key. Uh, if if you have uh, employees uh, interacting with these material handling forklifts or, or other materials, uh, everybody should know when these forklifts are moving, where they're moving, and how they're moving. And the only way that we can do that is through training. We have to ensure that these individuals are trained not only to operate the forklifts, but the individuals who are working around forklifts are aware the forklifts and other material handling equipment is being used in that area. And of course, I always say un unauthorized person personnel should not be permitted within the loading dock during loading and unloading operations. You mentioned a moment ago trip hazards, and I think this might play into this next question as well, but just overall, why is it important to keep dock area floors clean and docks well lit? You know, I, I think one of the things that go there uh, that's most important is housekeeping is a broad term that reflects routine maintenance and upkeep of the work area. I mean, good, ha good workplace housekeeping reduces injuries, illnesses, and it also prevents uh, fires, and it also can, of course, uh, uh, make operations move more efficiently. Uh, to ensure proper workplace housekeeping is maintained, uh, this has to have a commitment between not only the employee, but also the employer. Uh, one way, of course, of doing that is establishing a housekeeping plan. Uh, there's a lot of times when housekeeping plans are established, they'll do all of the warehousing itself. They'll do the office areas, but sometimes they will forget the deloading dock areas. So that's one thing we want to make sure uh, that the employer does include the loading dock into the housekeeping plan. Uh, you know, the housekeeping plan should incorporate all processes operations and tasks that are that are performed at or near the loading dock. So with that, we're talking about actually the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, removing debris from from the trailer itself, from the dock area itself, store, uh, the, the stairs itself, and inside and outside right at the roll-up doors or the exit doors themselves. That's very important to sure, ensure that that area is maintained. There's a lot of times when, when you go to warehouses, you will see that they, that they have cleaned all the areas, but one area that's often misses right outside the loading dock, right outside the door. A lot of times there's a lot of material left in that area. And as the wind blows, it can make things very, uh, very hard, especially when you go uh, to use the loading dock again. You know, and of course, in the event of emergency, OSHA standard requires that all exit routes be continuous and unobstructed uh, path of travel so that you can get to a place of safety. So I say that that uh, include incorporating 
uh, a housekeeping plan and keeping uh, not only the loading dock, but the warehouse area clearing and clear is going to also help with fire safety. Uh, at no time should any material be placed temporarily or permanently within an exit route. We talk about exit routes. That may be the routes that we talked about that the uh, material handling equipment may use, or it may be a route that the employees has been designated uh, as a, an emergency route. Uh, when we talk about lighting, lighting should be adequate in high traffic areas such as inside and outside of the loading dock, platform, exit doors, and stairs. Uh, workplace lighting should strike a balance between visual comfort and performance. Employees must be able to clearly see what they are doing uh, with the lighting not being too harsh or causing an objective. As you know, a lot of times when we have individuals coming from a low light area, being it with inside of a trailer to a high lighted area being the open dock area, and then back into a uh, potentially low lighted area if they go into the warehousing, those can cause issues with uh, the eyes and cause the employees to, to uh, mislocate things and could cause accidents. So lighting is very clear. So we have to take into consideration not only natural lighting, but also the artificial lighting to ensure that this is adequate and suitable uh, for the place of employees. Uh, lighting should also be appropriate as we talked about inside and outside of the trailers. Uh, and when necessary, temporary lighting may have to be brought in uh, if some of the trailers are uh, not able to uh, uh, have that type of lighting. Reginald, you mentioned some truck traffic issues around facilities, and I wanted to ask, in addition to turning delivery and shipping vehicles off and chocking their wheels, what are some other safety concerns for drivers and their vehicles? You know, that's, uh, that's a very good point there. If the docks are equipped with hook resistance systems or wheel locking systems, the driver should ensure that the trailers are positioned in a manner to ensure that they're working effectively. Uh, the driver sometimes may need help from employees, from employers, employees to ensure that they have neg uh, negotiated and got into the pro proper spot to ensure that the systems are working properly. Uh, if they are using drop trailers, uh, sometimes we may need to use portable jack stands to ensure that the landing system uh, maintains the proper seating. Uh, if that's necessary and the drop trailers are used, we also should ensure that the chocks are, are used as well. Uh, we should ensure that the load and the transfer vehicles are stable and secure to ensure that no items have moved during the shipment before we start to unload the trailer. And we also want to ensure that the load, uh, the transfer vehicle is stable enough for the material handling piece of equipment to go into the trailer. Therefore, while that may not be the driver's responsibility, it's something that they can work with the employees to ensure uh, that the uh, trailer is properly seated. Uh, within the traffic control plans, there may be some things for the drivers to do. Uh, some employees may require their driver to surrender their keys until they leave, or they may have a drop solution where the individual actually drops the trailer and the truck idles somewhere else. Whichever way it should be well-defined of exactly what the drivers are required to do when they enter into the facilities themselves. Not only should the driver know this, but this should be something that's also uh, communicated to the loading dock staff of exactly what the driver is going to do. Uh, the driver, sh If the driver is going to sit in the truck and the keys are going to be taken, that should be identified to him. If it's going to be a drop trailer, that should be identified to the employer as well. Whichever way it goes, we should ensure that not only the drivers understand this, but also the employees. And of course, if we have different loading dock configurations for your different warehouses, you should ensure that each driver knows exactly what they are to do at those different locations. So we've discussed barriers for dock doors and other equipment, but what should listeners know about appropriate footwear and PPE for workers in dock areas? 
Yes, as we discussed earlier, identifying and assessing potential hazards and loading dock areas are crucial. Uh, personal protective equipment should not replace engineering, administrative, or procedural controls for safety. It should be used in conjunction with these controls. Uh, OSHA's PPE standard requires employers to select PPE based on the hazards present or likely to be present in the workplace. Uh, the standard also says that you're going to communicate uh, the selection of the PPE to the infected employee. Uh, the selection of the PPE should have proper fitting for the employee that's going to use the uh, piece of equipment as well. Uh, the employer should, ins should ensure that each one of the employees is trained uh, on the proper use of PPE, i.e. when the PPE is necessary, what type of PPE is necessary, how it should be worn, what is the limitation, and the proper care, maintenance, and life and disposal of the personal protective equipment. Using the follow personal protective equipment prevention needs needless injuries and can move while moving uh, materials. Uh, some of the equipment that could be used in uh, dock areas are hands and forearm protection, such as gloves, loading straps uh, to, to, to withstand some of the rough edges and sharp instruments. Another thing could be uh, eye protection could be also something that could be used in the loading dock. Uh, steel toe shoes or boots could also be required. High visibility vests may be used depending on your dock and your configuration. And metatorsal guards can also be used to, uh, to protect the instep in high impact or collision uh, areas. Reginald, you've been very thorough today. And as we wrap up, what else should listeners know about loading dock safety that might have been left unsaid? I think we covered a lot of things, but I just want to kind of reiterate when we talk about some of the dock plates. Uh, as you know, those dock plates are, are either portable uh, or they can be powered uh, and they have their limitations. You know, they, they can be called dock bridges, dock plates, dock levelers, whatever they're called. OSHA considers any device that's used to span a gap uh, to the next lower level or to the same level, they're going to consider it as a loading dock. A portable loading dock should always have a contact with the other edge of the dock. When possible, they should be secured. Uh, no loading dock should be, no loading, excuse me, no dock board should be used if it cannot be stabilized. And any dock place that put into service after January 17th, 2017 should be designated and constructed and maintained to prevent the transfer vehicle from running off the dock board's edge. Uh, one of the other things that we had talked briefly a little bit about, and I also always like to reiterate, is uh, power industrial truck forklift safety. Uh, forklift operators and employees working around forklifts are at high risk of collision, fall over, tip over hazards, and struck by hazards. And to prevent those things, one of the things we need to do is always ensure that operators of the vehicle understand uh, how these vehicles are different from regular uh, vehicles that they may drive on the roadway. Operators should always operate the vehicles in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions. They should always say wear seatbelts when they're on forklifts, uh, keep their distance from the platform edge and re uh, uh, ramps, uh, be aware of other vehicles in the vehicle. Uh, in the area, be it manual or, or other forklifts. Uh, they should watch out for pedestrians uh, and only trained and company certified employees should operate uh, power industrial truck to forklifts themselves. Uh, we should ensure that these try that these employee are employees are trained on that type of power industrial truck that they are using. Uh, there's been times that I saw that individuals, yes, they've been trained on, on the designated fork trucks. However, there were new forklifts or new, uh, power industrial trucks that are used and these employees haven't been trained on. So they should be trained on that particular type of truck. And when the when the uh, power industrial trucks or forklifts are, are in an unsafe uh, 
uh, operating type of procedures, they should be taken out of service. Uh, one of the other things I also want to convey is if conveyors are used, a lot of times conveyors are used uh, when unloading the trucks uh, on the dock areas and employees can get their hands caught in some of the nit points of the comp- of the conveyors and the employees should be made aware of these hazards as well. And to prevent and reduce some of that, employees should be, shouldn't be permitted, of course, to ride on the material handling conveyors. And if there are any type of areas where the conveyors may pass over a work, uh, a work area or all, uh, you know, the material should be, uh, removed and shouldn't be allowed to uh, fall on the floor and not be, uh, uh properly removed. And once the conveyor is, is, is completed, uh, it should be put away. It shouldn't be stored, you know, in the dock or on a, or any, uh, aisle uh, area or that will expose employees to any other hazards. And I think one of the last things and probably one of the most important things is training. You know, uh, when, when there's any type of change in the workplace of equipment of operation, the employee should, uh, train the employer over those changes. Uh, the lack of skill and knowledge so many times is something that caused injuries. Uh, training must be provided, uh, and employees should always do everything that they can to ensure that employees not only understand the training, but that the training is also uh, conducted uh, when there are some type of incidents and accidents to ensure that the employees uh, understand how and what caused the injury and how to avoid the injury uh, in the future. Uh, with that said, I think I've uh, just about covered a lot of issues over uh, the loading dock. Absolutely. Without a doubt, Reginald. Thank you once more for sharing your knowledge and your expertise on this topic. Again, uh, as we said, this has been a popular point of interest, especially among online readers for quite a while. So we really do appreciate the insights you've provided. So thank you for being our guest. Well, thank you for having me. You have a great day. As we approach the end of this episode, it's about that time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. And to get things started, uh, we'll mention that uh, we've kind of he- we've been hearing that OSHA is going going through a lot of its emphasis programs and kind of updating them. I, one of the latest that we've uh, written about is um, there's a new uh, revised uh, national emphasis program on combustible dust. I believe there was a regional emphasis program here recently. Uh, concerning the auto parts supplier industry in kind of the South, uh, Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. Um, there's a, a kind of updated for site-specific targeting as well. So I, I would be on the lookout for, for that, if for any interested listeners, uh, kind of the OSHA might be rolling out some uh, more revised emphasis programs. Uh, Barry, what about you? Well, Alan, as, uh, as we're recording here in uh, mid-February, we are learning that there's going to be pretty likely a change at the top of the Department of Labor, uh, and we can blame hockey. Uh, Marty Walsh is apparently leaving the Biden administration uh, to become the executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association. And obviously, we all know uh, Marty Walsh's strong labor background, um, but uh, definitely an interesting change taking place there. And, and Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Sue uh, is likely going to be the acting secretary when Walsh steps down. Uh, and Sue is the former secretary of the California Labor and Workforce Development Agency. So an interesting change there in the Department of Labor. Uh, Kevin, how about you? Well, staying with sports, not necessarily sticking to sports, as is the popular phrase, uh, this is a podcast of three reformed sports writers, so I feel like it would be remiss to not note that the the guest of our expanded five questions with his name bears a striking resemblance to the man nicknamed uh, Mr. October. 
that being Reggie Jackson, the the outfielder. And what I learned was a briefly very quick trip to baseball reference, and that was that Mr. October, and I imagine some of those games were played in September given the, the schedules, and it's not like today, but in any event, in postseason, Reggie Jackson in 17 postseason series batted 278 with 18 home runs and 48 RBIs, um, and that was over 281 at-bats. Um, as for the occupational safety sphere, getting away from sports, um, quick couple things from the recent Mind Safety and Health Administration stakeholder call in January. Um, that was that MSHA had reported 29 minor deaths in 2022. That compared to 37 uh, fatalities the agency had registered the previous year, and that had followed six straight years in which fewer than 30 minors had died on the job. Um, in addition, um, MSHA had, had noticed, uh, I'm sorry, had noted that the agency had issued a, a pattern of violations notice in uh, December of last year, and that marked the first time since 2014 that the POV was used, and that's one of the agency's strictest enforcement tools. And lastly, uh, MSHA at, at the beginning of the year launched a Facebook page. So um, the agency administrator, Chris Williamson, just had alerted listeners to that and that it's available and just expanding use of that on Facebook. Is there something important that you learned this month? Share it with us via email at safehealthnsc.org. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we appreciate you spending some of it with the three of us. If you'd like to share feedback, please email us at safehealthnsc.org. We'd also appreciate you rating and reviewing this podcast. To find stories such as Barry's feature on pregnant workers and all of the latest news from around the safety world, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. Also, big thank yous to our NSC colleagues Ryan Gruntish, Amy Bellinger, Debbie Meyer, Paul Walensky, Karen Lord, Melissa Ruminski, and Jen Yario. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side. <music>